Our liberties we prize. Our rights we will maintain. We know that's what we say. But is that what we do? Oh. Ted Koppel's career in broadcast journalism included uh, three years with ABC News. And this includes the period of time when the Fairness Doctrine was law and when it was repealed. Me, did you say 53 years? No, I said 43, didn't I? I, uh, I, I, don't, you, I it was I don't, a little hard to hear. It's it's hard. Hard. Yeah. It was a little mangled. I'll tell you what, hold on. Let me just go get my hearing aids. Maybe you'd want to do your own introduction. <laughs> No, I'd be much tougher on me than you are. Uh, oh, this uh, is amazing. Now I can hear you. Uh, all right. Let me, let there me, go. Again. please don't hesitate to interrupt if I say something inaccurate. Right. <laughs> Ted Koppel's career in broadcast journalism included 43 years with ABC News. And this includes the period of time when the Fairness Doctrine was law, as well as when it was repealed in 1987. We're grateful to Ted Koppel for his reporting and coverage of history in the making and for his extraordinary interviews on ABC's Nightline. I do think a man of your stature, who, how many years you were with ABC and how many Emmys you've won, the fact that you, Ted Koppel, are willing to appear on a podcast with two women from Iowa says a lot about the fact that today anybody how desperately give, lonely i must be right? there's that just before coming on it occurred to me that you don't even know if you are interviewing me or a chat gpt version of me that i put up here so that i could go on doing what i normally do in the morning hmm. Do you think that a chat GPT version could replicate you with such nuance that we would be fooled? Would the bird cage with the stuffed bird be in the background? Maybe not, maybe not yet. But very seriously, in another year or two? Yes. Absolutely. That's so true. Uh, in another year or two, you will not know if you are talking to a real person or a digitized version of that person that has been programmed with every utterance that person has ever made over the course of a long lifetime. And that's pretty scary. But seriously, it doesn't take wealth to buy a broadcast license these days. Anybody can do it. We are living proof of that. So tell us your perspective on what's happening in broadcast journalism today. What have you seen change in terms of the demise of the fairness doctrine? Did you experience personally, witness anything personally that that told you things were going to be different now that the fairness doctrine was gone? Not immediately, no. But one of the interesting coincidences uh, and it could not have happened without the disappearance of the Fairness Doctrine, is that in 1988, I believe, a year after the Fairness Doctrine was dumped, a young fellow by the name of Rush Limbaugh, 
appeared on the radio scene. And what Rush began doing is something that he was now perfectly not only qualified, but permitted to do. And that is, instead of presenting things from an objective point of view or providing equal opportunity for those who disagreed with his point of view, he was now free to give vent to his own ideological opinions and to do that with increasing vigor over the years. And he was, as we all now know, enormously successful. And I can't help but believe that Russia and his success led then to an Australian newspaper baron by the name of Rupert Murdoch to say, why don't we do that on TV? And Fox News was created. And the success, the financial success of Fox News was such that the folks over at NBC who had this little, what do we call it? They had a, they had a little news channel that wasn't doing much of anything. They looked at what Fox had done and said, look, they're making a billion dollars a year by presenting an ideological point of view on the right. Why don't we do that on the left and see what happens? And they did. And over time, they have not become quite as successful as Fox yet, but they're up there now. And they're making a ton of money doing it. And those are the broad strokes of what has happened over the past, what are we talking about now, 40 years, is that ideology has taken over where objectivity used to be our lodestar. So here's a question about that. What is the role of a discerning public in deciding what is legitimate news and what isn't? For example, now that Fox News has been ordered to pay or has negotiated a settlement with Dominion Voting Systems for $787 million, do you think there will be fewer Fox viewers? Or will they stick to it because they like its ideological bent? Um, I'm not sure if you'll forgive me if you stated the question correctly. It's will Fox continue doing what it was doing before because it has been so chastised with the loss of three quarters of a billion dollars. And what's your take on that? My take on that is they're going to be watching what's happening with a couple of these other even more extreme agencies that are out there, television. I don't even know what we call them now. Are they networks? I guess they are. Yeah. And if, if they start taking away Fox's audience, I think Fox will be just as ideologically rigid as it has been over the past 30, 40 years. But does the American public really seem to care about truth anymore? Donald Trump can spew as many lies and be disproven time after time, and yet he still has this very strong base. What has happened to the public in the intervening years since civility, even-handedness, were the law of the day for journalism? The Internet has happened. And the Internet has made it possible for people to reach out to those who are ideologically sympathetic, who hold the same kinds of views that they do. And so what in the old days, by which I mean 50 years ago, 
would have been limited, let's say, to a couple of guys sitting on bar stools and sharing the peanuts and a few brewskis, now can be expanded to include thousands of people who hold exactly the same point of view that I do and whose opinions merely reinforce my own opinions. That was not technologically possible before. Now it is the present and even more the future. And oh. the future in a sense that I alluded to at the beginning of our conversation in that we won't even know whom we're talking to. Do you see any hope? Do you see any solutions to this? Or are we doomed? I don't know. It's too simplistic to say we're doomed, but I certainly, I, if there is hope out there, I don't see the shape of it yet. Because this is only going to get worse, and artificial intelligence has within it so many dangerous manifestations that we haven't even begun to tap into yet. Uh, I'm currently working on a piece for CBS Sunday Morning on, on the impact of AI on warfighting. You're probably familiar with the, some of the early experiments that were done in AI, where an AI program ultimately defeated every chess master in the world by, in effect, absorbing millions of chess games, analyzing millions, if not more, of chess games, to the point that they, the program was able to defeat every chess master. And it would do things that has caused human chess masters now to reevaluate chess as a game. For example, in, in one particularly important game, I don't know if you play chess at all, but the most powerful piece on the board is, of course, the queen, because the queen can make almost any moves on the board. The AI program in one of these games with the chess masters sacrificed the queen early in the game. That is a no-no. You don't do that in chess. But the AI program won the game. Now, take that and transpose it to a situation in which the president and his top advisors are in a wartime or near wartime situation. And an aide comes in with what the AI program is recommending. And it is recommending a course of action that, was, that would result, let's say for the sake of argument, in the death of 50,000 people. However, the AI program indicates that it will save the lives thereby of 228,000 people. What does the president do? He and his aides do not have the wherewithal of examining all the information that the AI program processed in order to come to that conclusion. So it has to take it on good faith and it has to act very quickly. Do it or don't do it. What's the answer? 
I have no idea, but it scares the hell out of me just thinking about it. Technology is a little bit out of our hands at this point, at least for purposes of this conversation. I would ask you, if you, when you speak to fledgling journalists, where do you encourage them to get their news? News that is trustworthy, reliable, factual, and not biased. All I can do is tell them where I get my news. And these days where I get my news is on television. I get it on PBS. I watch the, the PBS evening news. I do listen to NPR. I do read in front of me right now is the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. That's where I get my basic news. And do you think that people who are on very partisan media, who are the reporters, for example, on Fox News, because I don't watch it with any regularity, have they gone through the process of going to journalism school like many journalists of my, our generation had to do to get into the field? Or are they just catapulted into it because of their political views or their attractiveness? Or I don't is- know. Honestly, I, I have to tell you, I'm no great fan of journalism schools. Why are you not a fan? You don't, doesn't it teach the same things that the Fairness Doctrine would teach about equal sides, both sides? And, yeah, but um, look, my, my argument would be when you're in college, learn mm. something. Learn something. I don't mm. care if it's history or if it's physics or if it's ballroom dancing, but learn something. And then when you go to work for a news organization, mm. the veterans there will teach you about journalism pretty fast. Let's be honest here. Journalism is not that complicated. <laughs> Learning good journalism is not that tough. You submit a few biased or bad or ill-sourced pieces to a good editor, and he'll rip you a new one or she'll rip you a new one in no time. And after you've done that two or three times and been corrected two or three times, you'll never do it again. Learning good journalism is not that hard. Having an intelligent background with something in economics or in science or in real estate, I don't care what it is, but come to the job in journalism with some knowledge, with an education. That's the important thing. I agree with you. And I will just say, speaking personally, I got my first master's in political economy and then went to journalism school because I wanted to get the tools of the trade to work with what I had learned about political economy. One of the best classes I had at Columbia was taught by Fred Friendly. And he made us put ourselves in the shoes of a journalist who's standing in an office where there's a file of information that we really want. And the person behind the desk gets up and leaves the room. Do we grab it? Don't we? There were so many ethical debates that we had with him that I really learned a lot from. And I wonder if people coming onto the job right now in a TV station network or in a newspaper get that kind of training as rigorously as we did. Look, the fact of the matter is you're, you're proving my point. You got your education from arguably one of the greatest producers of television news in the history of the media. Now, whether you got that at Columbia or whether you got it at CBS in the old days, I would argue it doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of difference. You got it from a professional journalist, someone who really knew the industry knew the job, knew the the ins and outs of it were and what the ethics of it are. 
The fact that you got it at Columbia, lucky you. But that's not necessary. If you'd worked as a, what in the old days would have been called a copy girl or a copy boy at CBS News working for Fred Friendly, you would have learned the same things, but you would have learned it while you were getting a small, very small salary. But you wouldn't get it at Fox News today? No, you wouldn't. And quite frankly, I'm not sure you get it at most of, you know, the news these days, we didn't have 24-hour news back in those days. Yeah. When Which, I was, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Jump in. Under the heading, what the hell happened to Iowa? It's a microcosm of what's going on around the country and around the world, of course. But we have a governor who will not hold press conferences. 30 years ago, the governor of Iowa, same party, Republican Party, had a press conference every day. There was a lawsuit filed because the current state administration was not complying with requests for information, freedom of information requests. There seems to be a concerted effort not to talk to the press. Is that is that a part of what we're dealing with? How would you advise young people today going into the business to work around that? Look, it's a hugely difficult problem because when you and I were young reporters, we didn't face the same crisis. We didn't face a landscape in which you had X number of right-wing outlets, X number of left-wing outlets, and very few outlets that feel they look at CNN today. They're trying very hard to return to the old Ted Turner roots of just doing straight journalism. And they're getting their butts kicked. The ratings are awful. So what are they going to do over the long haul? What they, excuse me. What they did last week is have Donald Trump on for uh, an infomercial for a long period of time. What do you, what did you think of how CN handled that town hall? As I I was interviewed by the New York Times before, and they asked me should CNN be doing it, and I said absolutely. We are not in the business of ruling out someone who is at this moment at least the leading Republican candidate. I think the mistake that CN made was to do it in front of an audience that was made up exclusively of either undecided leaning Republican or Republican, for the most part, Trump supporters. In 1968, I was covering the Nixon campaign. And the Nixon campaign was doing something that was just frustrating the hell out of those of us who were covering it. They had these town meetings in which they had a panel of citizens interviewing the vice president. And we were sure that they were stacking the panel. It would be a housewife and a cab driver and a lawyer and a grocery store clerk. And we would look into their background and they were legit. There was absolutely nothing wrong with them. Now, A, when a bunch of ordinary folk are suddenly up in a situation where there are television cameras on them and they are interviewing the vice president of the United States, that's pretty scary stuff. If you're not accustomed to doing it, you're going to be a little bit 
impressed by that and worried by it. What we didn't look at, and Roger Ailes was the one who created this setup, was the audience. The audience had been stacked. The audience was made up of nothing but Nixon supporters. So anytime the vice president said anything, the audience would go wild in jubilation, cheering what he had said. And that's what happened at the CNN town meeting. They ended up undermining their own anchor, their own host of the show, because anything that Trump said was greeted with laughter and applause and cheering. And there was no way that Caitlin was going to be able to get over there. She did a fine job, but the odds were stacked against her. Quick question about decorum in these kinds of situations. When Trump tells her you're a nasty person, I thought she handled it very sprightly and didn't say anything back. But what should be, what was your role? Were you ever undermined or demeaned like that by one of your guests? And what would be your way of handling it? You let that, I think Caitlin handled that just right. You let it just bounce off you. And how aggressively do you push, though, on getting a truthful answer without being seen as uncivil? Look, if the audience had been evenly divided, let's say, between Democrats and Republicans or between Trump supporters and Trump doubters, then I think Caitlin could have pushed back a little more. But if you push back too much, then you are perceived as is, after all, a former president of the United States. Whatever you may think of that, there are millions of people out there who believe that he is owed the deference that a former president normally gets in this country. And if you, as a journalist, are clobbering the former president because you can't take a little swipe, you're the one who comes across as the heavy. you got to be able to control your own emotions. And Caitlin did an admirable job. I don't criticize her for that. I don't criticize her for anything she did or did not do. CNN stacked the deck against her unintentionally, but they did. Did you ever get hate mail or that kind of pushback? Sure. Nothing but, but my yeah. hate mail came via the U.S. Post Office. I'd get... My secretary in those days would take probably six or eight letters a week that threatened me bodily harm and just send them off to the FBI. Mm. Uh, The difference between half a dozen wacko letters and thousands upon thousands of filled messages coming over the internet sometimes in the millions. That's pretty scary stuff. Are you an observer, I'm sure you are, of the consolidation of media companies? Do you think that plays a role in where we are in this media landscape? Sure it does, because the consolidation is usually done on on one basis alone. It has no journalistic underpinnings whatsoever. It's all economic. If we combine the resources of paper A with paper F and paper Q, we can get rid of one-third of the staff of each of them. We can reduce the expenses. 
is the effectiveness of the newspaper that results from that equal to that of the former three papers? Hell no, not even close. Um, I just came back a, a few weeks ago from South Carolina from doing a piece on news deserts, places in the country where quite literally they have no access, zero access to local news. And what we were covering down there is what the, the large, the big kid on the block in one of the major cities is doing with small newspapers around the state. They're combining resources and they're helping the small newspapers. For example, when a small newspaper that has almost no income is trying to get information from the local sheriff, and the local sheriff says, hell no. And you want to go for, for a, you're looking for a Freedom of Information Act, and you're told it's going to cost you 350 bucks. You don't have it. The big paper in Charleston is now saying, fine, we'll pay for that. And you'll provide some of the information you get, and we'll be doing a story, and we'll be using some of what you and your reporter, if they even have a reporter, pull together, and they're doing extraordinary things. I'm hopeful that journalism will somehow survive, but it is becoming increasingly difficult. We I don't have... know if this is something you looked into, but I'm just wondering if you saw, have seen any kind of correlation between voting patterns in those news deserts compared to places where there is a lot of news? Haven't I haven't looked at that. Don't know what the impact is. I can only assume that the impact of a lack of information is going to accrue to the benefit of the most unscrupulous candidate. We're, of course, going through something very similar here. The Des Moines Register back in the day could have had upwards of 300,000 subscribers. Today, it's down to in the 40s. We have digital platforms popping up to do just the kinds of things that you're talking about. They're collaborating amongst themselves. We have Iowa Capital Dispatch, which is a part of the state's newsroom project, and they, in turn, provide copy and reporting to local newspapers around the state at no charge. Uh, Report for America just dispatched a reporter to this entity who will be covering higher education. Then And then again, that reporting will be available in these small newspapers. But we're still talking about maybe 10, reaching 10,000 versus 300,000, no matter, no matter what anybody is doing. There doesn't seem to be any kind of day of Ted Koppel and day of Edward R. Murrow when there were limited but trusted news sources. Do you see any solution to that in conversations with people? I'm afraid I'm very negative on this because I do see the internet as undermining anything we can do to restore the kind of news environment that existed 40 or 50 years ago. And look, the fact of the matter is, 120 years ago, uh, you had yellow journalism in this country. Journalism was not, did not reach any kind of qualitative peak in the early days of the last century 
It wasn't until the 19... And even, look, in the 1950s, I was born in England and came to this country in 1953. And in 1953, things were pretty miserable in the United States. It was the peak of the McCarthy era, and people were being fired from their jobs simply because someone pointed the finger of leftism, communism, Marxism at them, with or without any evidence. There would be lists of people put out by unscrupulous enemies of free journalism. And a lot of people lost their jobs in those days. This isn't the first time that we've come up against ideological problems. It is the first time, though, that we're confronted by technologies that are such that I, I don't see an answer. I don't know how you five years from now, or your successors and my successors are going to be able to sort out the difference between the real Ted and the fake Ted, who looks and sounds just like the real Ted. And the reason he looks and sounds just like him is because he has been programmed with everything that the real Ted ever said or wrote in his life. All of it. Everything. Good, bad, so that the fake has all the background of the real person. Now, is that going to make a difference when you're interviewing that chat GPT, but you don't know it? I'd like to ask you about something unrelated to this, which is when we talk about the sort of heyday of journalism in this country 30, 40 years ago, it was, quite frankly, the bastion of white men, primarily, sure. right? Absolutely. So as it began to diversify, as more people of color and women got into the ranks and were on television as presenters, as anchors, and so on, it seems to me it correlates with this pushback from the right also. Do you think that has been a factor in the growth of right-wing media? Of course, it's been a factor in the growth of the right wing. Look, the simple reality is, in another half dozen years or so, whites in America will no longer constitute the majority. The majority will be people of color. So that when the right today takes that indisputable statistic and puts it in the context of Democrats are bringing in or want to bring in all the people of color they can across the southern border, let's say. That's one of the issues we're dealing with right now, because the assumption is that if you are a person of color, you're going to vote Democrat. Now, that may prove to be untrue. That may prove to be a bad miscalculation. But that is a reality of the political judgments that are being rendered and of the political hotspots that are being pressed these days. How do you scare white American men? By telling them that women of color are going to be taking their jobs. That's pretty scary stuff.
I want to keep our commitment to the time constraint. You didn't keep anywhere close to your commitment. Why are we pretending? How long have we been going on? We've been going on for about three times your commitment. And you know what? We could go on for another several hours. You're a delightful person, and we both have so much respect for you. Is there anything you'd like to say to our many listeners about what the hell happened to Iowa? What the hell happened to journalism? Look, I don't know what the hell happened to Iowa. I really don't. And I do know what the hell happened to journalism. I have lived it. I've been watching it. And all I can tell you is it's going to get infinitely worse. Because if the internet itself was the highway of bad intentions here, then AI is just going to, it's going to quintuple that. I don't know how humanity is going to survive the advent of AI. I really don't. I, I, the only good news for me is I may not live to see it, but I'm sorry that my kids and my grandkids will. I don't know how we're going to deal with that. I really don't. And that's another subject. And I suggest you find someone who knows what he or she is talking about, because I'm just watching it from the sidelines and saying, I'm not up to this. Thank you so much. And if anybody is up to it, it would be you. So don't don't give up just yet. Exactly. And thank you so much for sharing your time with us. It's really been delightful chatting with you. I could go on for another hour or two, but clearly you have bigger and better things on your plate. So many bigger things. Absolutely. (laughs) I think, is that the president on the other line? Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) Which president? (laughs) Just look around at where we've been. The more we lose, the less we win. Come on and make me smile.